When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Zach and Ashley here. We'll be back with our regular episode soon, but in the meantime, we wanted to share a preview of a podcast we've been enjoying and think you will too. Now, you're probably used to seeing Shakespeare in your high school English lit class or on the big stage, but did you know that Shakespeare turns up in so many other places? On the new podcast, Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare, Barry Edelstein, the artistic director of one of the country's leading Shakespeare theaters and co-host, writer, and director M. Weinstein, Ask, what is it about Shakespeare that's given him a continuous afterlife in all sorts of unexpected ways? You'll hear Shakespeare doing rehabilitative work in a maximum security prison, helping autistic kids to communicate in the mouths of U.S. presidents, and even at the center of a deadly riot in New York City. And, as you'll hear in this preview, shaping religious observances and bringing wonder to all of us. Barry and M take a deep dive into how Shakespeare informs contemporary religious practices and faith traditions and explore one of Shakespeare's greatest plays, The Winter's Tale. Okay, here's the preview. We hope you'll enjoy it as much as we did. And if you do, you can hear more from Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare, wherever you get your podcasts. It is required. You do awake your faith. You know that line, right, Em? Of course, The Winter's Tale, Polina at the end of the play. Such a great line. And a great character. And a great play. It really is the one Shakespeare I feel like I couldn't live without. I mean, as much as I love Hamlet and King Lear and Henry V, this one just gives me something more. It touches on something spiritual. When I'm around it, I feel Shakespeare looking beyond the play itself, beyond the theater, beyond beyond, if I may quote him. You may. Thank you. And that's beautiful. I love the play, too, and Polina requiring us to awake our faith is just so stunning. Em, that's exactly what I want to talk about in this episode of Where There's a Will, the intersection between Shakespeare and faith. I can't help thinking that The Winter's Tale and this huge idea about faith in it is kind of the unified field theory that ties together everything we've heard in our podcast. And I guess that's not surprising because The Winter's Tale comes near the end of Shakespeare's career, and it's one of the plays that seems to sum up what his whole writing life has been about. But the play's a rare one. It's not performed anywhere near as much as the famous ones you just mentioned. Well, I'm doing my part. I've directed it twice, and I buy a ticket whenever it's on. If it's at the local high school, I'm there. I've gotten on airplanes to see productions of it. I've seen it in German and Italian and Swedish. Swedish? Ingmar Bergman's production. Maybe the single greatest night of theater in my life. Wow, I wish I'd seen it. But before we get into it, maybe we should remind everyone what it's about. We absolutely should, Em, and I've even asked some actor friends to lend us a hand. A little two-minute mini-production of the play to get us going. Great. We're in the imaginary kingdom of Sicilia, where King Leontes reigns. Dear Sicilia. He's married to Queen Hermione who's very pregnant with their second child. The queen rounds apace. Suddenly, out of the blue, Leontes decides that the baby his wife is carrying is not his own, but his best friend's. 
He accuses them and they deny it, but he gets violent. Too hot, too hot to mingle friendship for his mingling bloods. His friend runs away. He throws his wife in jail. Away with her to prison! She gives birth to a daughter. Leontes snatches the baby and banishes her from the country. Bear it to some remote and desert place. A loyal courtier takes the baby away. He's the guy who later has to exit pursued by a bear, but never mind. Leontes puts Queen Hermione on trial for adultery, and she insists she's not guilty. Innocence shall make false accusation blush. Leontes begs the god Apollo to rule on the case, and an oracle from Apollo's temple confirms the truth. Hermione is chaste. Leontes a jealous tyrant. Leontes refuses to believe it, and the second he says so, word arrives that his beloved young son, the prince, has dropped dead. The prince, your son, is gone. This terrible news makes the queen collapse, dead too. The queen, the queen, the sweetest, dearest creature's dead. Leontes has lost everything. His wife, his son, his newborn daughter, and his best friend. He sees the terrible error of his ways, but it's too late. So he vows a life of repentance, self-denial, and despair. Come and lead me to the sorrows. And that's just intermission. The story jumps ahead 16 years. Leontes' exiled baby daughter is all grown up. Another incredibly complicated series of events reunites everyone back in Sicilia. There, a wise and fierce woman of Leontes' court, Paulina, has been presiding over Leontes' 16 years of darkness. Every day, Paulina has reminded the king of the damage his foolish jealousy has done. The king's grief and remorse have paralyzed the entire country. It's just frozen in time for a generation. Paulina brings Leontes and all the key figures still alive from that awful moment 16 years ago into a chapel. Inside, there's an impossibly lifelike statue of Queen Hermione. Leontes is overcome with emotion, stunned by the image of his dead wife. The statue is so perfect that he could swear the marble is breathing. Paulina offers to do something miraculous that will heal Leontes and his country, redeem his tyranny, and restore what was lost. But, she tells him, before she can do that, it is required you do awake your faith. Paulina summons mystical music to play. And then, in a moment that to me is one of the most beautiful in all of Shakespeare and one of the most moving in world drama, the statue of stone becomes flesh, and Hermione, 16 years dead, comes back to life. Leontes is healed. His loss is restored. He gets a second chance. Faith, that, William Shakespeare tells us, is the way to redemption, the key to restoration. I'm Barry Edelstein, and I run The Old Globe, one of the country's leading Shakespeare theaters. And this is Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare, from The Globe and Pushkin Industries. Our show discovers Shakespeare in all sorts of unexpected places and asks what his presence means about him and about us. 
My companion on this search for old William is a friend and colleague with their own deep interest in Shakespeare, the director and writer, M. Weinstein. It's really wonderful to talk about The Winter's Tale, but as great as it is, and as moved as I am by Paulina's line about how we have to awake our faith, it makes me ask, faith in what? Shakespeare doesn't say. Maybe faith in God, maybe in some other higher power, maybe in love, maybe in ourselves, maybe in each other, maybe all of the above. I think your question contains its answer, M. There's an openness to what Shakespeare's doing in this line a wide, inclusive, subject-to-interpretation view of what faith can mean. And this is regardless of whatever Shakespeare's own faith might have been, whatever his own religious or spiritual beliefs were. Because I hear something else in Paulina's words. I hear them as a challenge to King Leontes and also to us. What will we choose to believe in? Where do we find miracles? How can we turn the cold marble of an indifferent world into the warm embrace of human beings caring for each other? How do we awake our faith? We'll get into the answer after a short break. The question of what Shakespeare means when he talks about faith has been alive in my own life for a long time, Em. And for me, Shakespeare himself is a big part of the answer. How do you mean? Well, I have a very real kind of faith in him. I turn to his works for wisdom and insight, for light, for solace. At my most intense moments, I hear his lines. When my daughter was born, I heard them. You gods look down, and from your sacred vials pour your graces upon my daughter's head. When my father died, I heard them too, as I talked about in our episode about Hamlet. When I look at my 10-year-old son and I see in him a strange mirror image of myself, I hear another line from The Winter's Tale. I am like you, they say. Whenever I feel like I'm near something that reaches beyond the normal, I hear Shakespeare. I don't think you're alone in that, Barry. A lot of people connect with Shakespeare on a spiritual level. And making where there's a will, I've had the chance to speak with some amazing ones. People who stand at the intersection of Shakespeare and faith. Listen to this, Em. That's Kol Nidre, the prayer that starts the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur, right? Yep, the Day of Atonement, the most somber day of the Jewish year. And that's Yusela Rosenblatt in a recording from the early 1900s. He was a famous cantor in the Jewish faith. That's the person who leads the congregation in song during prayer. His Kol Nidre was haunting and serious. But M, listen to this. On the riches, marriage blessing, long continuance and increasing. Our joys be still upon you. Juno sings with blessings on you. Blessings on you. That sounds like Shakespeare. It is. Lines from The Tempest set to music. That's how Yom Kippur was observed in 2022 in Orange County, California. 
with Shakespeare? You didn't know he was Jewish? <laughs> if only. Well, he was that day. The service was the brainchild of a really interesting and innovative rabbi. My name is Marsha Tilchin. I am an ordained cantor and rabbi uh, through the conservative movement of Judaism. Rabbi Tilchin founded the Jewish Collaborative of Orange County. It's a nonprofit that serves the local Jewish community there, particularly marginalized Jewish populations. They do all sorts of programming, including services for the major holidays. Rabbi Tilchin was a theater major in college, and she studied a lot of Shakespeare. She found that reading him closely and intensely, the way you do in an academic setting, really appealed to her. And then her life took a different path. Years later, I had a, sort of what they call a teshuva, a return to my sort of traditional Jewish roots, and I pursued a career as a clergy person and discovered through my biblical analysis and my joy in text study that it reminded me of my close reading of Shakespeare. My first exegetical exercises were in Shakespeare, not Torah. And so, I mean, there's always been a link for me. I love the idea that close reading of a Shakespeare text and close reading of the Torah, the five books of Moses, are related. They're both old canonical texts that wrestle with moral and ethical questions. And they cry out for minute analysis, for interpretation, for explication. That's the exegetical reading the rabbi was talking about. We know what biblical exegesis is. Well, there's a Shakespeare exegesis, too. Endless volumes of commentary by experts who argue with each other and with what was argued before. It's a living tradition of debate and dispute. And just as with Scripture, there are radical interpretations and conservative ones, traditional productions of Shakespeare and avant-garde productions. But back to Rabbi Tilchin. She was doing some work with academic colleagues at a week-long seminar called Shakespeare and Sacred Text. They were exploring the connections between these two types of literature and asking how they both touched on questions of faith. It was really remarkable. And I thought, I don't want this to end here. So I'd like to invite a taste of that into our high holiday services. So that's how the idea came to include some pieces of Shakespeare's writing in these high point moments in our Yom Kippur morning service. I asked Rabbi Tilchin to share her perspective on that holiday. Yom Kippur, first of all, is in some ways the most somber and elevated day of the Jewish calendar year. It's called Shabbat Shabbaton. It's the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. It's the day that the Jewish people as a unified body, where we reunite with God in our commitment to embrace God as the sole sovereign of the universe. And we do so with ideally pure hearts, pure souls, and also really looking at our relationships with others, certainly with ourselves, with the people most important to us, and ultimately, our relationship with God as we understand it. That's the work we're supposed to be doing. So, I'm Jewish, Em. Me too. And as moving as I find Yom Kippur, I also find it, well, I'll let the rabbi say it. It's endless. <laughs> and, uh, but, I, but I say that, it's, it's, you know, it's almost as if the world stops for 26 to 27 hours 
in my former congregation, we'd begin praying on Yom Kippur at 8 a.m. We'd be finished at about 2.30. We'd take a little break. We'd start again at 4 with the fourth service of the day. And when it was finally dark and three stars came out, we would hear the final shofar blast and we could eat. And and people often stay in synagogue all day. So, uh, yeah, that's what happens. A lot of prayers, a lot of connection, a lot of conversation, a lot of learning. It's amazing. In my own experiences in synagogue, M, I've seen how prayer books often bring secular material into the liturgy. Poetry, meditations, writings related to the themes of the service. Rabbi Tilchin told me that for her, these things help close the distance between our modern lives and the ancient traditional rituals. They make prayer feel more immediate. This is why she brings Shakespeare in. Writing like his delivers a special jolt of meaning. It touches people's souls, she told me. That's what was behind her decision to include Shakespeare in her Yom Kippur observance. That's so beautiful. So how does she get Shakespeare in there? Well, she told me about one example when she took a very famous speech from Macbeth and linked it to one of the central prayers in the Yom Kippur service. And then, of course, thinking about that famous speech of Macbeth about what is the meaning of life tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. We thought that we would actually open the high point in the Musaf service, which is a very special poetic passage called Unatana Tokef, and we would actually lead into that with Macbeth's speech, which is very, nobody would think that that would happen. Many of the lines that we've heard today uh, from the Book of Psalms, images of the transience of human life, including a line from Psalm 90, which reads, we spend our years as a tale that is told. And Shakespeare renders this in a line that we have all, I hope, heard. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That passage the rabbi connected to Macbeth, the Unatana Tokef, is central to Yom Kippur. It translates roughly to, let us proclaim holiness. The prayer talks about how humans stand before the Almighty in humility as we accept responsibility for our actions and yearn for growth and change. The rabbi read me a little piece of it. We are like a fragile vessel, like the grass that withers, the flower that fades, the shadow that passes, the cloud that vanishes, the wind that blows, the dust that floats, the dream that flies away. But you, sovereign of all, are the living and everlasting God. I listen to you read that passage from the Unitana Tokef, and I hear sonnet, maybe at 60, like as the waves make toward the pebbled shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end. And it's exactly that vision of time as a march toward the end of, of, a, of a sense of 
incipient loss that resonates with me in exactly that same way. I think about a great soliloquy in Hamlet where the king kneels down to pray, and not just to pray, but to repent for murdering his brother and finds that he can't, right? Try what repentance can, what can it not? And yet what can it when one cannot repent? And as I speak with you, Rabbi, I just hear this uh, sort of 30 years of Shakespeare that's been in my life welling up with the same kind of ideas that are being explored in the spiritual life of that day on the Jewish calendar and, and Judaism broadly. It's, it's an extraordinary parallel. No kidding. And by the way, I don't know if you want the good news or the bad news, but I am so making you come to my services next year. So I just want to say, book your ticket to Orange County for High Holidays 5784. We should live, poo poo poo, we should live and be well, as we say. Rabbi Tilchin's doing something really exciting. She's connecting the secular and the sacred, and she's using Shakespeare as the bridge between them. It's the same Shakespeare we found building bridges to incarcerated populations or to an idea of Americanness. He's very good at forging these kind of bonds. And he's a place where communities can come together and discover something meaningful. Rabbi Tilchin thinks about Shakespeare as a way to enrich her own religious observance, and when she shares that impulse with the community she leads, Shakespeare enriches their faith too. He widens it. He deepens it. We'll be back after a short break. The next time I go to synagogue, I'm going to be really bummed if there isn't some Shakespeare there. I know. A guitar-playing rabbi singing songs from Twelfth Night. Not something you see every day. Shakespeare really does turn up in some surprising places. (laughs) And M, I found him in another kind of spiritual context, too. I spoke with a wonderful thinker who has incorporated Shakespeare into their mindfulness practice. My name is Lauren Schufren. Lauren uses they-them pronouns. Like Rabbi Tilchin, they first encountered Shakespeare in an academic setting. But even after their studies ended, he stayed with them, and he moved into another part of their life. Shakespeare is utterly uh, magnetic, and I, I couldn't figure out quite how to put him down. My spiritual inquiry is already such a, such a part of my life that, you know, when, you, when you're holding two things um, so regularly in your life, you naturally find ways, I think, to start putting them in conversation. Lauren has a rich and deep meditation practice inflected by Buddhism. It shapes the spiritual inquiry they mentioned. They found parallels between certain key themes that preoccupy Shakespeare and certain key ideas in Buddhist thought. The more time I have spent placing Shakespeare and the Buddha side by side, you know, listening for their resonances, for me, the connection that has become clear is that one of them, right, namely Shakespeare, had the ability to represent inwardness and suffering better than any writer of his time, right? And the other discerned how to liberate us from that suffering. And none of this, of course, is to say that, that Shakespeare was a Buddhist. People do a lot of trying to put Shakespeare in, in a lot of categories, and that's, that's not my interest. 
But Lauren is interested in Shakespeare's very specific relationship to mindfulness. Now, Em, I know a lot more about Beatrice and Benedict than I do about the Buddha, but Lauren helped me understand how central mindfulness is to Buddhism. It's a way of training the mind to be intentional, to experience things with full alertness and comprehension. It has an ethical dimension, too, as it asks that humans be ever mindful of how we live and behave in the world as we seek to alleviate suffering. In Lauren's mindfulness practice, Shakespeare's lines function as mantras. I don't necessarily take these lines into my meditation practice with me, but the Shakespeare as a mantra, those are the lines accompanying me out into the world. Mm. I mean, it, there comes a point in time in which you've been so deeply steeped in Shakespeare that sometimes something happens in a day, and for whatever reason, the first thought that comes to mind isn't even yours. It's a line Shakespeare wrote. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I sound silly saying it, but that happens to me more times than I'm maybe comfortable admitting. You, well, know? you can admit it here. It's this is just... our confessional. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I appreciate that. The lines have a way of seeping into your unconscious, and they manifest in all kinds of crazy ways, you know, like uh, like some old movie where a guy's walking down the street and a piece of newspaper blows onto him and, you know, he looks at the newspaper and it's the secret to whatever it is he's been looking for. Back in 2018, Lauren decided to offer to the wide world the connections they were making between Buddhism and Shakespeare. They started an Instagram page called Shakespeare and Mindfulness. Grab your phone, Em, take a look. It's how I found Lauren in the first place. Wait, I'm looking at it now. Oh, there are these beautiful photos of pieces of paper with short passages of Shakespeare on them and like an old typewriter font. The web of our life is of a mingled yarn, good and ill together. And the paper is sitting in nature somewhere, on a tree branch or a flower or on some sand at the beach. It's beautiful. With mirth and laughter, let old wrinkles come. And Lauren accompanies each photo with a few paragraphs. They explain the original context of the line, and then they interpret it through a Buddhist lens or from the perspective of mindfulness more generally. We know what we are, but know not what we may be. It's so great. It's like going on a mini retreat right in your hand. And then people chime in with associations of their own. Every wink of an eye, some new grace will be born. And this retreat turns into a community event. And this kind of sweet and even vulnerable discussion emerges about how Shakespeare is touching people's daily lives. How long a time lies in one little word? I asked Lauren to share some of their favorite posts. The second servant observes in Romeo and Juliet, he says very simply, but like so poignantly, we cannot be here and there too. It's a line, if I were not reading Shakespeare thinking about spiritual inquiry, I would pass over in a, in a heartbeat, right? But suddenly that line is a, is a mantra that in the course of a day is just calling me back to like each exquisite present moment. Um, when Volumnia tells Coriolanus, You are too absolute. Like what stories and beliefs does that line help me see that I am like tenaciously holding on to? And then this one is my favorite. Um, when Pericles reunites with his long-lost daughter, whom he can't quite recognize yet, he says to her, Thou lookst like one I loved indeed. 
What changes if I arrive to each new encounter in my day with that in line? Thou looks like one I loved indeed. Mm. Remembering, right, to bring it back to Buddhism, that everyone I encounter has been my mother, my liberator, my lover in some life, right? Like right. you are, you're someone I've loved before. And so that line for me really calls up like the, that Buddhist notion of, of rebirth or of interbeing. So these are just kind of some of the examples of, of what shows up on that feed. Oh, those are amazing. I spent a lot of time scrolling through that feed, and it made me laugh, and it moved me, and it made me think. It did start to touch on something that felt spiritual to me. And then, M, I found this line. Meantime, let wonder seem familiar. And that took me somewhere else entirely, to someplace that I know to be absolutely central to how Shakespeare sees the world. You know, meantime, let wonder seem familiar, just delighted mm -hmm. me. I think it's one of my favorite quotes, you know, about wonder, about anything in Shakespeare. The line is from Much Ado About Nothing, and the plot is kind of similar to The Winter's Tale. A young couple named Claudio and Hero are about to be married, but on their wedding day, Claudio dramatically accuses Hero of cheating on him. The friar who was supposed to marry them advises her to play dead, to send out word that she's died of a broken heart. This will buy some time to clear her name. When everything is sorted out and it's revealed that Hero is actually alive, Claudio is astonished, just struck by wonder. And the friar tells him to let wonder seem familiar. So he tells Claudio for the moment, right, let wonder seem familiar, which which is to say, you know, for now, I need you to accept these astonishing events as ordinary matters, right? But I, I love, mm -hmm. I so much just love turning that line on its head a little bit because a familiar, right, as a noun, was a close friend or an intimate or someone you knew well. And so, you know, that line is actually just with a, with a little bit of a twist, an invitation to become intimate with awe, right? Let the familiar seem wonderful. Make astonishment an integral part of your life. An invitation to become intimate with awe. What a great turn of phrase. It gets at how fundamental wonder is to Shakespeare. And M, through all the years I've been working on his plays, I've come to believe that wonder is what Shakespeare is about. It's the big idea he was driving at his entire career. Wonder is the unified field theory of Shakespeare. Which is so interesting because wonder is a word that's lost a lot of its juice since Shakespeare's day. In our language, we just throw it away. I wonder what that's about, or this sandwich is wonderful, or speaking of sandwiches, wonder bread. It's a lot more bland than what Shakespeare understood the word to be, isn't it? Yes. For Shakespeare, it's an emotional state that's excessive, shattering. For him, wonder is what we feel when we're faced with something completely overwhelming. It's what we feel when our minds are blown. It paralyzes us, stops us dead in our tracks. And to Shakespeare, wonder could be both a positive feeling and a negative one. It could be prompted by things that are beautiful and things that are terrible. A breathtaking sunset can be a wonder, but an earthquake can be one too. Wonder has a doubleness in it, the monstrous and the glorious, loss and gain, grief and ecstasy. They all strike us into wonder. 
It makes so much sense that this idea would be what brings Shakespeare into faith traditions and religious observance. Because to ponder God, to ponder a higher power of any kind, to ask the biggest metaphysical questions about our lives, even to marvel at the nighttime sky or the Grand Canyon, or if you like, the tiny fingers of a newborn baby or the flowers blooming in the spring, to look at any of these, to consider miracles in any way, it's necessary to have access to wonder. I like your silence. It the more shows off your wonder. That's Polina again from The Winter's Tale, isn't it? She connects wonder to silence, and that's so right. In front of something that inspires awe, we feel small, a little humble, a little quiet. Em, that's how I often feel in front of Shakespeare. And I think that in some way, that is what allows him to turn up, not just in synagogues and personal meditations, but in all the places we found him this season. A quiet sense of awe. His power of evoking wonder, of embracing it, of giving it, as he says in another play, a local habitation and a name, this is what touches men who've been incarcerated for 30 years, what helps them find a kind of emotional transcendence in these works. It's what gave Abraham Lincoln some consolation in these plays when the Civil War was at its bloodiest. It's what makes a five-year-old autistic child able to express herself in some small way through these 400-year-old lines. What makes teenagers feel like they've discovered in Shakespeare the secret decoder ring to being alive. Yes, a touch of the marvelous in all of these places and all of these people. A touch of the marvelous. A touch of wonder made familiar by Shakespeare. Over our eight-episode expedition through Shakespeare in the world, that's what I've discovered. His capacity for wonder, his ability to describe it, to conjure it, his way of making us experience it, these are powerful, magical even. There's something ineffable about Shakespeare, something quietly spiritual. It's what draws us toward him and him toward us, whoever we are and wherever we are. That's really lovely, Barry. And it gives me an idea. Do you think maybe we could close our season finale by letting Shakespeare work his magic for a moment? Nothing would make me happier. Let's wrap up this season of Where There's a Will with a scene from Shakespeare. Em, you and I narrated the plot of The Winter's Tale earlier. Yes. Repenting for 16 years, Leontes is taken by Polina into a chapel where there's a statue of his dead wife, a wife he accused of adultery and whose death this accusation caused. Now he sees an image of her carved in marble and is awestruck at how lifelike she looks. Listen as the words wonder, amazement, marvel ping through this scene. Imagine you can hear them pinging through a prison or in the journal of a 15-year-old, or in the Oval Office, or on an Instagram, or in your own secret heart. Oh, grave and good, Paulina, the great comfort that I have had of thee. What, sovereign sir? I did not well, I meant well. But we came to see the statue of our queen. Behold, and say tis well. I like your silence. It the more shows off your wonder. Chide me, dear stone, that I may say indeed thou art Hermione, 
or rather thou art she in thy not chiding, for she was as tender as infancy and grace. I am ashamed. Does not the stone rebuke me for being more stone than it? Oh, royal peace! There's magic in thy majesty. Would you not deem it breathed? What was he that did make it? My lord's almost so far transported that he'll think anon it lives. Still, methinks there is an air comes from her. What fine chisel could ever yet cut breath? Let no man mock me, for I will kiss her. Good, my lord, forbear. Or resolve you for more amazement. I'll make the statue move, indeed. Arise and take you by the hand. What you can make her do, I am content to look on. What to speak, I am content to hear. It is required. You do awake your faith. Then all stand still. Music, awake her. Strike! Tis time! Arise! Be stone no more! Approach! Strike all that look upon with marvel! Come, away! You perceive she stirs! Oh, start not! Her acts are holy! Do not shun her. Nay, present your hand. Oh, she's warm. If this be magic, let it be an art lawful as eating. She embraces him. She hangs about his neck. Let wonder seem familiar. Thanks for spending some time with us. And thanks for listening to Where There's a Will. Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare is written and hosted by me, Barry Edelstein. My co-host is M. Weinstein. Our show is produced by Buffy Gorilla and Nisha Venkat, with assistant producers Jennifer Sanchez and Salman Ahad Khan. Our executive producers are Catherine Girardot from Pushkin and Alex Lewis and John Myers from Rohome Productions. Our editor is Audrey Dilling. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger. Our theme is an original composition by Hannes Brown. Samia Bouzid is our fact checker. Vicky Merrick is our voice coach. Our show was recorded at Bill Corkery Productions, Leopard Studio, and The Old Globe. Special thanks to Brittany Brown for help with this episode. Thanks to our development department, Lital Malad and Justine Lang, who developed the pilot for this show. Thanks to Sam Dingman, who produced the pilot and the scene from The Winter's Tale we just heard. Paulina was played by Opal Aladdin and Leontes by Ian Lassiter. Shakespeare and Mindfulness quotes read by Camilla Leonard. Our executive team includes Jacob Weisberg, Malcolm Gladwell, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Jason Gambrell, Lital Molad, Greta Cohn, and Mia Lobel. Our marketing team includes Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Nicole Morano, Mary Beth Smith, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Narvaez, and Sean Carney. 
We couldn't make the show without operations and licensing support from Nicole Optenbosch, Maya Koenig, Daniela Lacan, and Jake Flanagan. Where There's a Will is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and The Old Globe. Barry Edelstein, that's me, is Erna Fincy Viterbi Artistic Director, and Timothy J. Shields is Audrey S. Geisel Managing Director of The Old Globe. For The Globe, thanks to Sound Director Paul Peterson and Assistant to the Sound Director Evan Eason, Director of Marketing and Communications Dave Henson, Assistant to the Artistic and Managing Directors Carolyn Budd. The Theodore and Audrey Geisel Fund provides leadership support for The Old Globe's year-round activities. To learn more about the Tony Award-winning The Old Globe, one of America's leading regional theater companies, visit theoldglobe.org. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Find the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That was a preview of Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare, a new podcast from Pushkin Industries. Hear more from Where There's a Will wherever you get your podcasts.